Psalm 119.97. Here David will rejoice and declare God's wisdom, the Lord's wisdom. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you'll show us what it means to pursue heavenly wisdom. We ask you to give us a mind that is fixed and completely resolved to desire your wisdom for all that we need in this life, to guide our life, to determine what is right and wrong, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. We pray, Father, that it will be your wisdom that we wholeheartedly pursue. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, David now, in his focus on the Word of God, he highlights the wisdom of God and compares it to various circumstances and people and sources of information. Specifically, we see that in verses 98 to 100. He mentions his enemies, he mentions his teachers, and he mentions the elderly around him, those who are older than he around him. And in all these circumstances, in all these, these ways, he says that whatever they have, your word makes me superior to them. Your word, because it has heavenly wisdom, gives me the edge over those people. So David is focusing his attention on this because he knows that all of us, we are prone. We have this uh, proclivity to seek for wisdom in other places. We seek for wisdom in our enemies. We see how they are successful. We see how they accomplish whatever they do. We seek wisdom and we seek guidance from our teachers. We assume, most people naturally assume that the teacher standing before them is wiser than he. And therefore, whatever the teacher says must be right, must be true, must be the way that I should think and behave and conduct my life. And also, most people assume, though in some quarters of our society this is rejected, that those who have experience in life, those who are elderly, those who are seniors, that they have the right way. So whatever they say, whatever the tradition is, whatever way it's always been done, that must be the right way. However, David calls our attention to the fact that that may not be true. It may not be true in each of those circumstances. His attention is in the Word of God. He's saying that the Word of God has all the wisdom that we need. What David is doing here is he's saying that whenever anything comes his way, whenever any thought, whenever any pursuit, whenever any value, whatever anybody says, whatever he reads, whatever he sees, whatever is being bombarded upon him and his mind, he says, I need to evaluate everything. I need to Uh, discern everything based on the Word of God. Based on the Word of God. If it's based on the Word of God, then I will 
be better than my enemies. I will be better than my teachers. And I will be better than the experienced and the aged people of the world. And I will be faithful to walk in your ways. That's what David wants. And what David wants is what we should want. Let's see how David explains it. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He expresses this exclamation of how he loves the law of God. When he hears this word law, law to him is not a term of disdain. Law to him is a good word. It's a good word because it regulates his life. It gives him an idea of what is right and good. Instead of practicing uh, wickedness, he wants to practice righteousness. He wants to do that which is in accordance with the law of God. We know Abraham obeyed God and kept God's charge and kept his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. We know that this is the way that we are supposed to live. We're supposed to live, according to 1 Corinthians 9, according to the law of Christ. We have to live according to the law of Christ. We should think as a believer, and this is the way only a believer would think. A believer would say, law of God is a good thing. But when an unbeliever hears this, he thinks it's wrong and it's evil. I don't want to know it. I don't want to do it. I don't want anything to be, uh, in my life to be associated with that law of God. However, Jesus said that he and, and faith in him are not burdensome. It's, it's, he's got an easy and light load. What he wants and what he desires in us is enjoyable and delightful because we know it is good. We have a new heart. We have a changed mind. We have a, a, a new disposition in our world. We used to hate the things of God and obedience to God, but now we love it. He expresses love for it. He expresses love for this because in verse 104, he's going to express hate for every false way. The law of God is the true way. The law of God brings salvation. The law of God brings life. It brings peace. It brings reconciliation. It brings all the things that people are seeking for in this life. They want hope. They want comfort. They want peace. They want harmony and reconciliation. They want things to go their way. They want to know that they have a good future ahead of them. Everybody wants to know all this. But the way to know it is by the law of God. And when you know these things in truth... You love it. You love it. You want nothing else in life but to know God through His Word. And it will be a love. A love relationship with God through the Word of God. And He meditates all the day. He meditates on it all the day. To meditate in the Bible has a couple of meanings, a couple of applications. One is to read it. And often, reading the Bible in biblical times was read... Sometimes silently, but also sometimes audibly, in, a, in an undertone. Read in a very soft voice, the Bible would be read, and that small or, or soft voice would be a way to focus on the Bible and not be distracted. Sometimes when we pray and read silently, our minds are often distracted. But when we do it this way, we are able to meditate on the Word of God in a better way. To think about it in this way. To read it and then to think about it more dedicatedly. Now, meditation these days has many forms. In the Bible, the biblical meditation is not pagan meditation. 
pagan or polytheistic meditation, that is of Eastern religions, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, and even ancient European paganism and polytheism in South America and various places around the world where paganism is practiced, that meditation is typically a meditation of emptying the mind, of discarding every thought in the mind, getting rid of everything in your mind so that you can allow the spirits, which are demons, to come and inhabit you, to be possessed and inhabited by demons. That's what pagan meditation is. It is an emptying of the mind so that you allow a foreign, external, alien force to come inside you and to control you. But biblical meditation is not that. Biblical meditation is the active use of the mind based on the truth of God. An active use of the mind based on the truth of the Word of God. This is the way of the Christian life. We are constantly trying to get our minds under control to fix them on God and the things of God. It's an active work. It's not something passive, but it's active. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, gird your minds for action. Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we fix our hope on the revelation to be brought to us uh, at the uh, coming of Jesus Christ. So this is the kind of meditation the Bible expects of us. When we read the Bible, therefore, it should be with an alert mind. We should be active. It should not be careless. It should not be something that we do just a little here, a little there by happenstance. We should be actively focused on what does this passage mean that I'm reading? What does this chapter mean that I'm reading? And we seek to find out, and we pray to God and ask Him to help us. David says he does this all the day, all day long. He's thinking, he's reading, he's memorizing, he's wondering what God says and what God thinks all day long. Because all day long, he faces all kinds of challenges, all kinds of decisions, all kinds of temptations, all kinds of advice people give him. It happens all day long. But when that happens... He focuses on the Word of God. Verse 55, Psalm 119.55, O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. Verse 62, At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Our verse in, in 97, that he meditates all the day. We also have in Psalm 119 and verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. And verse 164. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. David does not compartmentalize God. He does not give God just five minutes a day or ten minutes a day or fifteen minutes a day. He gives his thought life, his words, his actions, everything he's doing constantly, he thinks about God. He wants to know what the Word of God says about this or that. He wants to reflect on God's truths for his own life. When something is presented before him and it brings anxiety to him, what does he do? He thinks about what God says about that. 
He thinks about how he should properly respond to that anxiety. Whenever there's a decision to make before him, he doesn't just headlong and headstrong run into that decision rashly. What does he do? He thinks, what does God say about this? Let me back up. Let me practice some self-control. Let me ask, what does God think about this decision I'm about to make? That's why he says he meditates on it all day long. Verse 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. God's commandments make him wiser than his enemies because they are ever mine. They are ever with him. He's always thinking about what God's word says so that he's not tripped up, he's not disillusioned, he's not tempted to behave just like his enemies. Whenever his enemies are strong, whenever his enemies are surrounding him, whenever his enemies are throwing slander against him, whenever his enemies are plotting and devising evil to destroy him, what does he do? He does not compromise with his enemies. He does not succumb to whatever their temptations are. He does not strike a deal with his enemies. He does not seek to pursue the way that they pursue things. He does not read what they read. He does not pursue the goals that they have. He does not say, well, if they're going to do this, I'm going to do the same thing. He doesn't do that. In fact, he becomes wiser than his enemies. He becomes wiser than his enemies because... God's commandments are ever with him. They're ever his. He's pursuing it because he knows, in in God's way, because he knows his enemies are short-sighted. His enemies only look at this world. His enemies only look at this thing or this gold or these possessions that they're going to steal, that they're going to violently rob from somebody else. His enemies only look at this world and the current pleasures of this world. That's all that his enemies do. His enemies do not look at the world to come. They don't consider that there is a day of judgment. They don't consider that Christ, upon his return, will judge the living and the dead. That he will judge every person. They don't consider those things. But David does. That's what makes him wiser than his enemies. Because he knows the commandments of God. And he adheres to the commandments of God. And they make him wiser than his enemies. In 1 Corinthians 1, when the Apostle Paul preached, and when the Corinthians preached, they had many people around them. In their time, it was Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy and also Jewish unbelief. The Jews, they were looking for miracles, and the Greeks were looking for wisdom, that is, human wisdom. And they were using those means, the insistence on miracles and the insistence on human wisdom, as enemies of the gospel to undermine the gospel and to make Paul think and to make the Corinthians think that the gospel is foolish. The gospel is unworthy. The gospel is wimpy and weak. We should not believe in the gospel. We should believe in human wisdom or we should believe in miracles. We should believe in those things and not believe in the gospel. But Paul says, no. 1 Corinthians 1 All of our wisdom is found in Christ. The mind of Christ is what God has given us. And it is the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. It is the Word of Christ that saves us. Christ, Christ, Christ. That's all we need. And we'll be wiser than our enemies, even though they think they are wiser than us. Verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. 
Because he meditates on the words of God, it makes him wiser than his teachers. We have many teachers in life. We have teachers who teach us all kinds of things. They teach us about mathematics. They teach us about science. They teach us about history. They teach us about food. They teach us about psychology. They teach us about making proper beneficial choices in life. Time management. How to accumulate wealth. They teach us economics. They teach us government. They teach us all kinds of subjects. Do they not? But how many of those many teachers actually teach in accordance with the Bible? Very few. Very few of all of these subjects conform either their presuppositions or their goals and conclusions based on the Word of God. And in the meantime, they disregard the evidence of the Bible. Whether it's their assumptions, whether it's their evidence, or whether it's their goals, or all of the above, in one way or another, they disregard the Bible. They will give lip service to the Bible. They'll say, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. And they'll say, yes, yes, this is in accordance with the Bible. They'll say all of that. But when actually you compare what they are assuming, what their evidence is, and what their goals are, in one way or another, inevitably, those people will undermine the Bible. This also happens within churches, not only when, when Christians pursue the world's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. This also happens in church life, in terms of religiosity, in terms of traditions and rituals, in terms of what expectations are in local churches. How it is that somebody is saved. How it is that one should worship God. Or how it is that one can worship God. There are all kinds of inventions and fabrications that people have to bring into church life. And what they do, they end up undermining the Bible. They undermine the gospel. They undermine the true way of salvation when they do all those things. Just as a psychologist, with his assumptions can come to the Bible and undermine the Bible in the name of preaching and teaching in accordance with the Bible. In the same way, there are religious leaders who can bring things into the church and do the same. They'll say, no, 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 this doesn't contradict the Bible. The Bible doesn't comment on this. When actually, their method may in fact undermine the Bible. Even though the Bible does not mention a specific method, it does mention... The assumptions, it does mention the goals, it does mention the means of us hearing the gospel and being saved. So it is possible for church traditions to be presented that may not, in specificity, that specific action may not be mentioned in the Bible, but we understand what they're meaning by it, we understand what they're doing by it, and we know that their results are contrary to the Bible. Therefore, we have to. We have to understand that we will be wiser, we'll be more intelligent, we'll be more sophisticated, whatever term we want to use. We will be better than all of our teachers if we follow the Bible. They may not think so, but we ought to think so. And we ought to teach them to be submitted to the Bible, to submit their minds, to submit their values, their assumptions, their methods, and their goals with the Bible. That's what we should do. Then we'll be wise. Verse 100. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. He understands more. He gets it. 
He, he, and by this he means he obeys because he says, because I have observed your precepts. He knows more. He understands more. He is wiser, more discerning, more understanding than the older people around him. We would think, normally speaking, that the older one is, then the more he has control of his life. He has control of his mouth. He has control of his time. He has control of his values. He understands that he doesn't have the, the youthful desires that he used to have. He, sh- he is a better or different person. He regulates his life more. He's got self-control. You would think that the older one is, that the more that that would be the case. And generally speaking, that is the case. The older people get. The way that we used to live when we were single, especially if we were unbelievers, the way we used to live when we were single changed somewhat when we married. And then once we married, once we had children, we had more sobriety. We had more self-control once we had children. And then especially if you bring in the gospel, the gospel is that which changes and transforms us, whether we're single, married, or family-oriented. Any of these spheres, there is change that typically occurs. But in this case, he's saying, he understands more than the aged. Because it's not necessarily the case that age brings wisdom. Sometimes we think that, and sometimes the younger generation, they they fall into two traps. The younger generation falls into two traps. That is, because they are old, they know nothing. Or, they fall into the trap that because they are old, they must know everything, and I'll just swallow everything they say. When both are wrong, both are foolish, both are destructive. Because they are old does not mean you should reject them out of hand. And because they are old, it does not mean you should, ac- should accept everything that they say without any kind of discernment and qualification. We'll note here in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that the Apostle Paul told Timothy about this same truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Timothy is a young pastor, and he says to him, 1 Timothy 4, 12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Youth itself, he says, no one should look down upon. When it is accompanied by godly speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, then he shows himself an example of those who believe. By his conduct, he's going to elevate himself in the esteem and in the eyes of the people around him. It's going to be his conduct that shows, not his mouth, Not his rashness, nothing like that, but it's going to be his life, the way he talks and the way he lives. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Here, we have to reject youthful lusts and at the same time pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The problem that youth have is that they seek to pursue their youthful lusts 
in their own way or with others, and they don't go and gather with those who have a pure heart, those who call on the Lord, they don't make the good and right friends. Now those friends who are godly friends can and should be youth like they are, but they should also be the elderly, older people, like the godly ones who are actually following the Word of God. That's the way one distinguishes himself. That's the way you can have more understanding than the elderly. Remember that Joseph in Egypt, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 37 to 50, Joseph in Egypt was a young man, and it was his godliness that distinguished him, distinguished him from his brothers, his brothers at the time that they perpetrated evil against him, but also distinguished him in front of the other people even in front of Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's officials. Joseph, as a young man, was godly. Remember Samuel, Samuel the priest and prophet in the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 1 and 2. Samuel was a young man. He was a boy when his mother dedicated him to God and took him to the temple to reside there once he was weaned. He was living there and living and conducting the rituals and the temple. And then as he became older, he became a teacher. He was a godly young man. What about King Josiah? King Josiah came to know Christ as a youth. He heard the word of God. It terrified him. He repented of his sins and he called on the nation to repent. And he carried out expansive reforms both in the land of Judah but also in the land of the other tribes. Even though he wasn't reigning and ruling in those tribes, he knew that those areas were also supposed to be under the jurisdiction and the and the righteousness of the law of God. So he went into those territories and he overturned a bunch of the altars. He destroyed all kinds of pagan worship and he established the teaching of the Bible in those places. These were young men who practiced righteousness. They knew more, they understood more than the aged people around them. Not because of their goodness, not because of them, but because they were engrossed in the word of God. They imbibed the Word of God. That's why they were the way they were. Verse 101. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. He restrains his feet from every evil way, that he may keep God's word. Every evil way is like 104. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. He avoids the wrong path. He walks with God. He does not walk with Satan. He walks with God in the light instead of walking with the world in darkness. He doesn't walk that way. He restrains himself. He doesn't go where they like to go. This is just like Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He does not live that way. He doesn't go where they go. He doesn't stand with them. He doesn't sit with them. He has nothing to do with those people. He understands that he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. He understands that he has to be around those people of God who are true people of God, pursuing righteousness, pursuing truth and holiness. He doesn't allow his feet to go in the wrong place. He doesn't mingle with the people of the world who are actually destructive and bad for him and bad for his soul. Because what he desires, he says in verse 101, that I may keep your word. 
He delights not in pursuing wickedness with those other people. He delights in keeping the word of God. He loves to obey the word of God. The word of God is not a burden to him. For his commandments, as John says in 1 John 5, his commandments are not burdensome. Not burdensome. He wants to keep them. He wants to obey. And in fact, all who love Christ desire to obey Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 102. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. He doesn't turn away and he doesn't turn aside from the ordinances of God because he knows the origin. He says, for you yourself have taught me. He has reflected upon where the Bible originates. He has reflected upon who gave us the Bible. When he looks at the Bible, he does not look at the Bible as merely man's words. Yes, they were transcribed by holy prophets and apostles. They were delivered for us by them. Yes, that is true. But they were not merely man's words. They were not the words of man. They were not religious fiction. They were not religious inventions. No one of the prophets and the apostles went into the forest and cooked up a story and then came back out of the forest into civilization and said, God spoke to me. That's not the way it happened. They were not um, insane people. They were not beside themselves in any way, shape, or form. And that's what David says. For you yourself have taught me. I know that this Bible came from you. I know that these words are true because they came from heaven. They're not men's words. Therefore, I do not turn aside. I will not give up the Bible. I will declare that the Bible is true. I will say, let God be found true, though every man a liar. I will wholeheartedly be dedicated to the word of God because I know it has come from heaven. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter addresses this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father... Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. He says in verses 16 to 19 that the things that he commands, the things that he preaches and teaches, are not cleverly devised tales. They're not fictions. They're not fables. They're not legends and myths. Nothing like that. They're not that. We 
were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw when he was on that mountain, that holy mountain, we were there, Peter, James, and John. Peter was one of the three that saw the majestic glory that is God the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard him say that. We were there. Nothing is fiction. Everything is fact. And then he says in verses 20 to 21, Know this first of all. This has to be the foundation. This has to be the base of everything. That's what David says in Psalm 119. For you yourself have taught me. I know where this originates. He says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It wasn't a man here or there who had a curiosity, a vain curiosity, and a vain imagination to fabricate and bring up all of these religious ideas. It wasn't like that. It wasn't man's own interpretation of himself in the world. It wasn't man's own interpretation of God. That's not how it happened. How did the prophecies of the Old Testament happen? Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It was not an act of human will. By that, Peter means that the human will did not originate it. It originated by the Holy Spirit who used the human will to move the human will to speak from God. David is fully convinced of this. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3 verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. There he summarizes the Old Testament as the holy prophets and the New Testament as the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Old and New Testament right there. He says this is what we should know, we should believe, we should know its origin. As well, 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Paul and Peter wrote according to the wisdom given to them. Verse 15. He says, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Peter wrote like that by wisdom given to him. And Paul wrote that way. And even the Old Testament is that way. Verse 16. The rest of the scriptures are that way. According to the heavenly wisdom, the Lord's wisdom given to the prophets and the apostles. We who know the truth, we believe this. We know that the scriptures have a heavenly origin. They come from the Lord of heaven to us. So why would we, with this as our basis, why would we turn aside from the ordinances of God? Why would we think that it's not a good way? It's not the right way. It's not the wise way. It's not the beneficial way. It's not the eternal way. 
It's not the happy way. It's not the peaceful way. Why would we think that the Word of God would not be any of those? If we believe it came from God, then that should settle it. Everything else should be settled. And it should be a sweet settlement. Look at verse 103. 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He loves the word of God sweeter than honey to my mouth. He compares the word of God to honey and sweet foods. The Bible does sometimes compare it to honey. Psalm 19, 8, uh, Psalm 19 verse 10. Proverbs 24, 13, and 14. Let me read Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, 13. Where he describes the word of God. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. He looks at the Bible not as a bitter book. He looks at the Bible as having sweet statutes, as having commandments that are good for his soul. It's sweet to his soul to understand what the Bible says. This is the way... Of the righteous. This is the way of those who know God, who know God through Christ. We don't look at the Bible as something that is detestable, something that's to be jettisoned, something that is bitter. We look at the Bible as something sweet. Peter spe- speaks like this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, not specifically honey, but he does speak of milk. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The, the babies, the infants, they love the mother's milk. They want the mother's milk. They cry until they are satisfied with their mother's milk. And in the same way, we should be. Because we ought to have tasted the kindness of the Lord, the sweet kindness of the Lord in the Bible, and then want more of it. And want more of it. Read it, study it, memorize it. We want more of the Word of God. That's how precious it is to us. And then lastly, verse 104. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. We've already described that the false way is contrary to the Word of God. And the false way is the way that he does not want to live. He, that's the way of the world. It's the way of the devil. It's the way of the flesh. He wants nothing to do with the false way. Notice the word he used to describe his disdain. He calls it hate. He says, therefore I hate every false way. Because I get understanding, true understanding... Good understanding from your word, because I get that from there, it arouses in me hatred for every false way. These days people say we should not hate. They use hate as a way to silence critics. When actually hate has a good place. There are times when we should hate things that happen. For example, who today would not hate hate the person and 
desired justice to be meted out to the person who mistreats a little child, who tortures a child, who kidnaps a child, who murders a child, who would not have that? Only somebody who has a callous conscience would not have any hatred and anger that arouses in him against the perpetrator of such a crime. Correct? Do we know that that's a good thing for hatred to arouse, to be aroused within us, so that we do what's right and necessary to mete out justice to the perpetrator of that crime? That's a good hatred. There are many such instances of life. David here says that he has this hatred that comes up within him, it wells up within him, whenever he considers the false way. Every false way, not just some of them, all the false ways. Hatred comes up within him. Verse 128 in the same psalm, he says, Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. He esteems right God's precepts concerning everything. Everything God has said on any subject is right, true, and good. It's wise. And I hate, in contrast to that, every false way. Verse 158. Verse 158. Behold, I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. I, he beholds, he looks upon the treacherous, and he loathes them. The treacherous people are, are those who transgress the law of God. They are the ones who are criminals against the God of heaven. They practice treachery against the God of heaven. And because of that, he loathes them. He despises them. He hates them because of that. Verse 163. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. I hate and despise falsehood. Everything that is deceitful, all guile, all lies, all perjury, anything that is contrary to the law of God, he says, I hate and despise it. In contrast, I love your law. I love the one thing, but I hate the other. This hatred is not simply or exclusively an Old Testament hatred. We have hatred in the New Testament. Hatred that should be practiced by all of us, because God does. Titus 1.16. In Titus 1.16, the apostle says of the unbelievers, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The professors of religion are not the confessors of religion. The professors of religion put on a show. They are the hypocrites. They have an external manifestation of religiosity, but they really don't love God. They hate God. And their behavior, aside from public view, their behavior is wicked, vile, and corrupt. They don't know God. By their deeds, they deny Him, and they are detestable, a synonym for hatred. They are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Another example is Jesus calls on us to hate. Luke 14, 25. Luke 14, 25. Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
There he teaches us to hate our own life. What does he mean? He doesn't mean we hate our own life so that we beat ourselves up, we, we get some sharp objects and we hit ourselves over the head or the back. He's not saying that. He's not even saying that we kill ourselves. But he is saying that that which is sinful and loathsome and corrupt within us, that's present within us, we ought to hate it. And if we don't hate it, we cannot be a disciple of Christ. And likewise, if that is in our father, our mother, our wife, children, brothers and sisters, that also ought to be hated. It ought to be loathed, despised, hated. Not that we hate them and mistreat them, but that which they do, we hate it, we loathe it. We want nothing to do with it. Just as in ourselves. We hate what's within ourselves that is loathsome and detestable in the sight of God. Whatever we do, whatever we love, that is an abomination to God, we must hate it to be a disciple of Christ. That's what David means when he says that he hates every false way. Let's then be like this holy man of God, this prophet. He desired to have his whole life conformed to the word of God. Whatever he heard, whatever he saw, whatever people advised him, whatever he read, he made sure that everything conformed to the word of God. Let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.